Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. There are more than 22 million people of Asian descent living in the United States. And in the aggregate, Asian Americans have mostly better economic and health outcomes than other groups, including whites. Yet within the broad category of Asian American, there are dozens of subgroups, often with quite different health and lived experiences. This within-group heterogeneity is often lost, buried under the so-called model minority myth, which is used to deny attention to unmet needs among Asian Americans and to denigrate the experience of other minority groups, such as those of Black and Hispanic Americans. One subset of the larger Asian American population is people whose history traces to the Philippines. The relationship between the United States and the Philippines is unique, and this history and present-day status affect the health of Filipino Americans. And that's the topic of today's health policy. I'm speaking with Dr. Melanie Sabato-Liwag, an assistant professor at California State University, Los Angeles. Dr. Sabato-Liwag and co-authors published a paper in the February 2022 issue of Health Affairs about the ongoing impact of colonialism and racism on the health inequities faced by Filipino Americans. Dr. Sabato-Liwag and co-authors note that despite Filipino Americans' high educational attainment and high employment rates, they still face significant health disparities. We'll discuss this and much more in today's episode. Dr. Sabato Liwag, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you as my guest today. Let's begin just with a little level setting here for our audience. Can you describe the size of the Filipino population in the United States? And particularly, as you note in the paper, why the term immigrant is problematic when describing this group. Not many people realize that Asian Americans are um, a group, uh, that a big monolithic group that often is very robust with a lot of different cultures, um, migration patterns, uh, other sociopolitical systems. But often on the front side, you see just the language in which we differentiate many of us. Um, and the fact that Asian Americans are the fastest growing population in the U.S., according to the U.S. Census, uh, Filipinos are uh, also included in that. So Filipino Americans specifically are the third largest Asian American ethnic group in the U.S. Uh, we represent about 20% of all Asian Americans in the U.S. Um, and majority of Filipino Americans reside um, in California um, and Hawaii and other different states as Washington, Texas, and Nevada. Um, there's a lot of other different Filipinos throughout the U.S., um, specifically in New Jersey and New York um, and many other different areas where uh, there are maritime or healthcare professionals specifically. We will use California as an example here. Um, here in LA County, about within, within the 10 million folks that live and reside in LA County, um, Filipinos represent about 25% uh, of all of the 20% of Asian Americans. Um, and that's fairly many, but not as much to be recognized fully. Uh, why we do not like necessarily the term when describing Filipinos specifically is more so because of the, the healthy immigrant idealism or the uh, healthy immigrant effect that most people uh, attach to the word, um, whereas Filipinos have actually resided in the United States uh, for centuries. 
Um, and our history is very much intertwined with much of the aspects of um, U.S. expansion, specifically before World War One. And uh, that expansion also affects the employment uh, patterns of Filipinos in the United States. I was interested to learn a little about this in the paper. Can you say a little bit more about the relationship between U.S. policy and where we see Filipino-Americans employed today? Uh, We saw a third wave of immigrants, specifically after World War II, which allowed Filipinos um, to come in to work in the healthcare system. Um, Specifically, you see a large wave of Filipino nurses um, that were grown out of the um, American-influenced institutions um, in the Philippines, um, then immigrated here as nurses. Um, We saw waves of that from the 1940s into the 1960s. Um, And then you saw a continuous wave of Filipinos, specifically, um, more so because we saw here in the United States a a shortage of qualified nurses. Um, Today, if you uh, look at some of the uh, U.S. uh, occupational numbers specifically, we start to see that the Philippines um, provides the United States the largest foreign nurses, um, specifically at a third of, of all foreign nurses. Um, and today, there's also another new wave of Filipinos entering into the United States, um, specifically because of the high English proficiency and the English language that's often taught in the curriculum in the Philippines are teachers. So we don't tend to talk a lot about U.S. colonialism, but it does seem like it's hard to discuss the health status of Filipino Americans without bringing in colonialism. Uh, This isn't a history lesson, but maybe you could give us a brief description of that history and particularly why and how it continues to affect people's health. Oftentimes, when thinking about colonialism, uh, our first jarred reaction as Americans, because we learned them in U.S. history books, is in regards to um, the Native Americans specifically and, and the Alaskan Natives. Um, but colonialism specifically has always been conventionally understood as one nation establishing some type of political control over another. Um, and in this contemporary term, um, specifically, we are looking at that as the United States um, were then, you know, help, came to the Philippines um, with specific processes of utilizing the Philippines for um, other types of control. Um, in the Asian uh, specific areas. And so when we think about the legacies of colonialism, we often have to often think too is the disenfranchisement of specific subjugated people, which are the indigenous people of those lands. Um, And when included into colonialism with that power, we're also talking about the racial hierarchy um, oftentimes. And in this case, we're talking about American culture dominating Filipino culture. Um, And so in this case, we are thinking about how colonialism is a racial formation um, and how today Filipinos in itself um, has gone through this colonial process with U.S. institutions at this macro level or structural level where our governance in the Philippines has changed um, or have been influenced by U.S. institutions. Particularly, you can see this with the implementation of high English proficiency um, and utilizing um, and and institutionalizing 
nursing um, education as a way to supplement um, and encourage this influx of Filipino nurses into the U.S. system to not only include them in the educational system, but then also knowing full well that the Philippines in itself is a developing country um, and how that employment can then encourage other types of um, remittances that then help to perpetuate further growth in the Philippines. So it's, it's, a, it's a cyclical cycle in which we don't talk about oftentimes when we're talking about immigrants and, and, and remittances to other countries. Um, but I think Filipino culture specifically um, and Philippine history has been characterized um, in characterized and by this idea that there isn't cultural erasure, um, that there we don't talk about much about the U.S. militized you know presence in the Philippines since the 1890s, um, and how this has impacted Filipino American health specifically. Um, going back to your previous question, you had said you know why. Immigrant is a is a term that often doesn't apply to Filipinos, more so because of this long term history of, of U.S. presence in the Philippines. It really dates um, Western influence of health before actual immigration into the United States. Um, so, you know, diet, um, uh, the acceptance of specific Western um, ideals and behaviors um, often manifest even before arriving to the United States. And so that really impacts how we have high rates of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, um, the highest rates of breast cancer among Asian Americans, um, and also other different chronic issues that Filipinos are experiencing and we're often not talking about because of the, the aggregation of Asian American data, um, both health outcomes and health risk factors. Yeah, let's focus there for a moment. Um, part of the cultural dominance is the decision uh, to just group Filipinos in with this broader category of Asian American. And as you noted, uh, the health outcomes, but also the origins of those outcomes are quite different depending on who you're looking at within the category. And then, of course, in many instances, uh, even the group of Asian Americans is grouped in with other categories. And so we just call it other, and we don't even have any nuance around who it is we're talking about. Um, your paper talks about the negative consequences of these aggregations and basically the loss of the uniqueness of the Filipino experience. I wonder if you could say a little more about that. Sure. I think one of the biggest aspects that we often have to think about is this layering effect that is happening here. Um, so one is the historical aspect and, you know, the colonialism and the colonial mentality that Filipinos might ascribe to. And when I speak about colonial mentality, it refers to, you know, this internalized racism where people who are affected by colonialism um, ascribe to a myth of racial inferiority. On top of that, you layer, again, this acceptance or ascribing to the model minority myth, which you um, had just previously mentioned earlier among Asian Americans being aggregated into this um, diluted aspect of, you know, everyone having the same experiences. Um, when referring to the model minority myth, um, it, it often refers and assumes that all Asian Americans are often healthier and, uh, and economically well-off, um, which then just 
disregards the heterogeneity of Asian Americans. Um, but this thought process actually pins us against other marginalized um, and uh, oppressed ethnic groups, more so because it assumes that we're better off than another, um, which often case uh, by what we're saying in this paper is not the case. Um, and so I think by aggregating marginalized groups into another category, which often includes Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans and Alaskan Natives, other uh, groups um, that often are left due to sample size um, or just because data is often not collected specifically for these groups of people, it then waters down their narrative of, of cultural nuances um, that might have affected the uh, pathway in which that specific outcome had been manifested. If we look at these types of issues that are experienced by oppressed groups and marginalized uh, populations, you start to see a fairly similar um, narrative, which says that, yes, they have these outcomes, um, but their risk factors and their layering effect of determinants definitely vary. So I want to talk to you some more about the implications and also what we can do about it. Uh, we'll do that after we take a short break. Health Affairs Pathways is a new podcast series exploring the various avenues and alleyways of the healthcare system through a variety of storytelling. Unique series are created by fellows at the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship Program. Join the fellows on their journey to unearth a new healthcare story on such topics as healthcare consolidation, independent primary care, health equity, and more. Our first season is a six-part series from Lolita Abiancar. Her series, titled Piecemeal, examines how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Melanie Sabado-Liwag about the interlocking impact of colonialism and racism on Filipino-American health inequities. Before the break, we learned a lot about the rich and unique history of the Filipino-American population. But now I want to turn a little bit more to how we can uh, change our thinking in ways that we can use that richness to close some of the health disparities that exist. You state in the paper that some of the traditional predictors of health may not accurately capture risk factors for Filipino Americans. You've introduced the subject, but I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. I think this is the, the nuance among Filipino Americans specifically. What often is indicators for health are um, education, employment, uh, household income. And these are traditional indicators that often health and public health researchers and policymakers often utilize to then predict what does mortality and morbidity look like among uh, populations and, and have comparable relationships between these populations. But the problem with Filipinos is, like I had mentioned previously before the break, is that Filipinos are often healthcare workers. A majority of them do work in the healthcare industry, uh, whether they're nurses, allied health, or health technicians. Um, one of the issues that often we see is that although Filipinos, for instance, have higher education, because again, they're 
uh, occupying healthcare spaces. And along with the healthcare uh, profession, you often have higher income. But the things that we often are not noticing is, you know, the other layers of demographics that should be ascertained um, specifically for these populations, uh, marginalized and oppressed populations, such as uh, multi-generational households. Um, the other aspect of not just multi-generational households um, is the aspect of, you know, cultural um, nuances that might influence also how they um, choose to then take up other jobs, for instance. Um, oftentimes we see Filipinos are uh, employed into more than one full-time job, uh, often two full-time jobs, one full-time job with a part-time job. Um, many Filipinos are often uh, working beyond the, the natural age of retirement, which is 65 years of age, um, more so again to help with some of the financial strain that um, is attached to the culture in itself. Um, and so these are things that induce chronic health conditions, uh, whether it's both physical and mental. Um, and so these are things where we should be collecting some of these ideas that might be exacerbating uh, current health problems, um, but they also are issues when it comes to health access. For instance, if I had mentioned that someone is working multiple jobs, more than 40 hours a week, um, you know, oftentimes they are not accessing uh, healthcare services for themselves. Um, often navigating and helping other family members retrieve health access, but not necessarily for themselves. So this is where you start to see the high rates of hypertension, uh, uh, low rates of healthcare access, more so because we are more react reactionary in our healthcare rather than proactive. And some of these things are, again, cultural. Um, some of these things are taboo, things that we don't want to talk about and stigmatize within the community that we're often not getting. Um, so, yes, I think that there's a lot of other different uh, barriers to data um, that often are traditional and are often collected more quantitatively, and there should be a push for both use of qualitative and quantitative information. Well, that's exactly the direction I was hoping to take the conversation, so you've introduced my next question. We all know that data alone don't solve problems, but the absence of data certainly makes it easy to hide problems. You suggest in the paper that data disaggregation is a necessary, even if not sufficient, condition for bringing about the investments that are needed to reduce health disparities. Um, since you're at uh, Cal State LA uh, in California, I know you have the California Health Interview Survey, which takes a really intentional approach to precise data collection and disaggregation. I wonder if there are lessons from that survey regarding data collection or analysis that uh, we could apply to help address some of the issues you've raised? Obviously, there have been strong intentions to uh, do oversampling among specific groups of people. And I think that is one step towards getting uh, really uh, heterogeneic information among very unrecognized groups. Um, and this is just one approach, right? I think what we've learned also from the California Health Interview Survey is, you know, how do we use that information um, to 
pull in more advocacy from the community so that they are aware of these different issues that might be happening, whether they're protective factors or risk factors. Um, I think it's bringing in the community to help to contextualize this information. Um, it's utilizing the information to be publicly available so that communities can utilize the information for not just you know, policy advocacy, but for interventions. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that we also have learned um, through the conversations of our interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary group of authors is our discussion that um, data disaggregation is just one, like you said, one necessary step, but it's not the only one. More so because what do we do with the data after it's been disaggregated? What do we then do in making sure that it's public facing for other people to utilize? Um, but also, where are platforms where these groups of people who often don't have a voice um, can really have a place uh, to make decisions um, at a higher level, at a systemic level? Um, and I think that these availability of forward facing data that is specific to certain subgroups allows for that empowerment and advocacy to occur. Um, but it, it is a definitely a layering effect of different interventions across the way that needs to happen, um, both systemically at the community level and at the individual level as well. Well, bringing some of those themes together uh, as we bring our conversation to a close, I do want to ask you, you're the principal investigator of the filled project. And it sounds to me like it's very intentionally attempted to examine some of the topics we've just been discussing. Can you tell me a little more about that project and how it does try to tackle the challenges that have been the focus of our conversation today? I'm actually very honored to be the, I guess, the liaison or a steward for the field project data, um, more so because the community here in LA County was really wanting to do something about the disparities that were happening among the Filipinos um, during the pandemic. Uh, we felt that we needed to collect that information on our own, uh, more so because we started to see that more and more Filipinos were experiencing you know, physical and mental strain. Um, and it wasn't just among our young folks, but also our elderly. Um, you know, What is the digital divide that was happening um, and the isolation effects. So we wanted to collect that information, um, hence why it's called the Filled Project, which is um, you know, Filipino lived experiences during COVID. Um, and uh, oftentimes, you know, Filled is also utilized by a, a, a group here in, in California called um, the, the Filled Market, which is Filipino-led. And I think that was just a really great nuance because we wanted the community to really come together so that we can answer these questions for our community. We collected information through the Field Project through a survey um, between April to August of 2021. Um, and we wanted to understand just the prevalence of what was happening um, and the, uh, in terms of all the COVID-19 experiences. So lack of access, uh, any exacerbation of health issues, um, any problems behavior-wise. And these things were then reported back to the community through a um, town hall uh, late of 2021, more so because we wanted the community to see we have information. 
where do we go from here? Um, and so we were very lucky that this was funded by um, NCI's uh, GMAP project out of Frank Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Um, and a second wave of this project, which is gonna collect more qualitative information among healthcare providers, um, elderly and caregivers is actually funded by Rutgers um, and NIA. So we're very fortunate that we're, we're able to get you know, fairly small funding for these uh, pilot projects. Um, but these things help to provide a fast turnaround um, in regards to how do we collect information by Filipino researchers into the Filipino community, interpreted by the Filipino stakeholders, um, and then given back straight into the community to utilize as a force for advocacy and for um, future projects. Um, so we hope to continue that. We hope to collect more information and get more funding. Um, but because of the field project and the data that we, we actually collected, um, a colleague of mine out of CSUN, we just got funded for the NIH Radix up phase two, which includes Filipinos and other Southeast Asians um, to better understand the social and behavioral implications of the COVID-19 pandemic on vaccinations and um, testing. So a lot more to come. A lot has stemmed from the field project and we're so grateful for that. So um, we want to continue to push forward the measures of what is culturally relevant in our community, where is the data, and we're collecting it because we need it for our community to have a voice. Well, thank you for such a clear explanation of the importance of focusing in on the experience of Filipino Americans and the risks and negative consequences associated with grouping uh, into larger Asian American or other descriptors, which really fail to capture any nuance at all. I'm so appreciative of the effort you and your colleagues put into the paper and for you taking the time to talk with me today. Dr. Sabado Liwag, thank you so much for being my guest on A Health Policy. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.